For years and years and years, I wrote essays in Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Motley Fool Rule Breakers, essays to kick off the the issues. So it would be May 2008. Wow, remember 2008? And in addition to our new stock picks and best buys now that month, the mailed issue, remember mail, of Rule Breakers led off with a page one essay from me. And same with the next month and the month after that for years. Recognize any old school references? I bet you did. Issues, mailed issues. These days, our services are digital. We don't do paper copies anymore, and we don't do opening essays. There's no page one anymore. They wouldn't get the clicks. But I put a lot of time into those essays, and as they occurred over a long narrative arc of history, 2002 to 2017, 15 years worth of them, it can be both educational and amusing to go back and see what was being said when. The purpose of The Motley Fool is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And that's exactly what I was doing with those essays for years. So I've pulled some favorites with some timeless truths. And I want to introduce, or for long time, fools reintroduce you to our rule breaker thinking over time. But this isn't nostalgia or about yesterday. I think it may be a fine way to educate, amuse, and enrich you today, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's 2022. Happy New Year. Is it too late? I hope not. When is it too late to say Happy New Year to somebody? My sidekick and longtime producer, Rick Engdahl, reminded me just before we started recording this afternoon, it's probably too late to say happy 2021, but otherwise, it's really never too late within the year to say happy new year to somebody. Am I right? You know, I think the first time I wrote 2022, just a few days ago, I was noting at the time the results of our board game that we were playing, and it was on the little score pad. And whenever we write down the scores for this particular game, I write the date, and I got it right. I wrote 1 slash 1 slash 22. It's always a really satisfying feeling, isn't it? We all made it another year. We made it to 22 this time. The fraternity I was in at the University of North Carolina had this thing about the number 22. It was a mystical number. I think it was all a big joke, but every time anybody said 22, we would all snap our fingers. The idea was 22 came up much more often than 23 or 21. It was, as we said back then, mystic. Well, I don't know if this year will be mystical or not, but I know one thing. We're going to start this year with essays from yesterday. So with all of us looking ahead with our New Year's resolutions, which I myself have done, and I may mention that briefly this week or maybe in the weeks coming up, with all of us looking ahead and excited, I hope, about the the year ahead, why don't we put on our fool's cap, challenge conventional wisdom a little bit, and look backward? Because I think we might learn something by briefly looking backward. So I'll have four essays that I'm going to present you. This is, in fact, the third volume in the series. But before we get into that, let me mention next week. Next week is already determined. Talk about the future. We're going to be talking about non-fungible tokens. I'm going to have my pal Aaron Bush back. We may have another guest star. We shall see. But Aaron and I and you are going to hash through what we think of NFTs. Yep, we talked about this in our besties. A few weeks ago, Jim Surwicki joining me 
for that conversation. We did a re-interview with Jim. Aaron was out that week, but we all were talking about our Bitcoin 2021 episode. Well, this one will be NFTs 2022. And for some of you, that that's an exciting thing that we would talk about that next week. And I think for most of you, for most of us, we're like, now wait, what is that thing again? What are NFTs? How's the world changing or not? And that's kind of me too. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation with Aaron and you next week. And in fact, to that same point, if you have a question about NFTs, if you'd like us to touch on any aspect or angle of this topic, our email address is rbi at fool.com. You could drop us an email or just at RBI podcast us on Twitter. We'll keep an eye out for some of the best questions from our listeners, and we'll try to cover the topics that you want to see covered next week. All right, well, now let's get into it. Essays from Yesterday, Volume 3. This is the third in the series, and we last brought you the previous episode on October 7th of 2020. That's right. I didn't do this at all last year. A couple of ground rules about how this series works. First of all, I completely randomize which essay I'll be sharing with you. So for 15 years, I wrote 18 essays a year. 15 times 18, well, that's outside the multiplication tables, which for me ended at 12 times 12 equals 144. Although if you're a quick study, you could do 13 times 12, just adding 12 to 144 and go above and beyond and know that 13 times 12 was 156. But 15 times 18, that doesn't come as easily to my mind, maybe yours too, but I can tell you it was 270-ish essays. So what I've done then is I've randomized out of those 274. And I don't know ahead of time until we plan this podcast what I'll be speaking about since I'm randomizing it. Now, of course, I wish I could cherry pick my best and my favorite essays. I mean, I guess I like all of them. It's just that some of them were probably more right than others. So you never know how right or wrong I will be with any of these. It is completely randomized. And often I'll refer to some stocks So we get to look them up and see how they've done, and we'll always have some doozies both ways. Anyway, that's the first ground rule. We've completely randomized the mix. The second ground rule is they're in chronological order from earliest to latest. So for example, this particular episode, I'll be sharing an essay, the first one from June of 2006. Wow, 15 years ago. Then we'll jump forward just five months later for November of 2006, Then we'll get in our time machine and speed into the year 2015, February and December of that year, a mix of rule breaker essays and stock advisor essays. So that's what we have ahead of us. We do them in chronological order from earliest to latest. So Rick, if I could get please a little bit of our way back music. Because we're in our time machine right now, fellow fools. And here we are, we're lighting upon the month of June 2006. Do you remember what you were doing in June 2006? I have no idea what I was doing in June 2006. I have tried to keep my calendar intact since I converted over to Apple in 2008. So iCal, I can go back and see what I did any given day, but I don't remember my pre-Apple days particularly well. So in my Windows and Palm Pilot toting era, I have no idea what I was doing in June of 2006. 
But this essay helps me remember a little bit of it, and maybe I'll occasion something in your memory as well. So here we go. This was published on May 16th of 2006, but it was introduction to June 2006 issue. What, what an imaginative title. It went like this. Dear fellow fool, for my 10th birthday, I asked my parents for and received a chemistry set. Like a lot of kids that age, perhaps I'm describing you back then too, my growing fascination with the set involved an ongoing attempt to mix together the right combination of chemicals in no way documented by the instruction booklet that would, in quotes, blow up. I'm pretty sure I didn't want to blow up my house or my brother. I'm pretty sure I didn't intend to do any damage to myself, but I'm also pretty sure I wanted some chemtastic fantasy mix to lead to something somehow blowing up. Well, I nearly got my wish one day when some unremembered combination of sulfurous elements coalesced into a milky cyan soup that spontaneously turned brownish, bubbled, and superheated in my hand. I tossed the test tube into the sink, turned on the faucet, and ran. That was the closest I wanted to get, I discovered, to blowing anything up. Well, new investors are not so different from children. With chemistry sets, we're hoping for that fantasy mix of stocks that will cause our portfolios and our financial futures to do something wonderful to, in the best sense of the term, blow up. We line up our stocks in front of us like test tubes on a rack, each one containing something curious. We admire the metallic green one, the vaguely purple one, the the brilliant red one. We point them out to our friends. We're not even entirely sure what each will do on its own, but we're excited to see what happens if we start testing and mixing our money with each of these. Sometimes, of course, we hit on something fantastic. Other times, inevitably, we create dull or even spectacular failures. And it is with these latter experiments that we toss the beaker into the sink and run. If you have anything of the rule breaker mentality in you, you probably want to try a few things in no way documented by the instruction booklet. Great. Welcome to our service. Our approach to investing is in no way documented by the instruction booklets because you'll be hard-pressed to read back through the investment masters and find much clue about how to invest in nanotechnology, alternative energy, robots, or small-cap biotech. Neither these particular technologies, nor a world driven by them, was ever predicted or much contemplated by Benjamin Graham. And 99 out of 100 Benjamin Graham fans whom I've ever met want no part of them. But our world is and will be driven by them, and there's money to be made here, lots of it. And great fun to be had whether you're a newcomer, twice my own age, I turned 40 this May, or both. Indeed, for learning about these technologies and trends and the winning stocks behind them, you couldn't have found a better place. So strap on your safety goggles, buy a sizable chem set, diversify into a bunch of different stocks, and come learn with us. My fellow fools will occasionally blow stuff up, and some of that will be bad, but a lot of it will be good. Fool on. Well, a few things come to mind. First of all, I still remember that test tube and its milky cyan concoction 
And when I added something, it's superheated brown, and I literally had to drop the beaker into the sink and run. But I think the promise and excitement of a new chemistry set is often how people feel about coming to the stock market. At least that's that's how I hope you feel. I hope you feel some promise and some excitement, some willingness to experiment, and some recognition that it won't always go your way. I did mention we're capital F foolishly looking backward at the start of a new year, but that promise and that sense of excitement about the year ahead in lots of ways in our lives, I hope you also feel that with your investing. And a, a lot of people make a New Year's resolution to really get on top of their investing. So some of you are likely hearing my voice for the first time. It's kind of fun then that you're hearing my voice here from 15 years ago. In fact, that essay was published on May 16th of 2006. That was my 40th birthday. So I turned 40 as I reflected on being age 10 with my chemistry set, talking to people who were just getting started investing back in 2006. Two other quick thoughts come to mind. One is certainly that with the rule breaker investing approach, we've been building the plane as we've flown it from the beginning. Certainly the book Rule Breakers, Rule Makers, which I wrote with my brother Tom in the year 1998, remains, well, the first half of it anyway, which was about rule breakers, which I wrote, remains pretty much how I do still invest today. But we've been bolting on, and as I say, building the plane as we've flown, we've added a lot. So I mentioned last year around this time, the six principles of the rule breaker portfolio. That was a new piece. Maybe that was the tail or the rudder of this plane just added in the year 2021. So truly, it's recognition that frameworks can be built over time probably wasn't perfect when I wrote it out in 1998 in our first book. It wasn't perfectly thought through by this essay in May of 2006. But I've been consistent and truly building toward the same thing over many years. And I think a lot of the fun has been able to see how these stocks have done, how this approach has performed for me and for so many others over the last 20 plus years. So that sense of building the plane that Benjamin Graham couldn't have ever flown because he wasn't around when small cap biotech became a thing. That sense, and I'm going to be speaking to this in another essay coming up, that sense of being highly contrarian, loving innovation, recognizing that's where the world is going and that's where value will be driven. In fact, that's the last thing I want to mention about this essay, the line, but our world is and will be driven by them, by these technologies. That was true in 2006. That's just as true here in 2020. 22. Look around you, study the technologies that seem early on with big promise, get to know them. NFTs might might be one of those. They might not work out. We'll see, but we'll talk about that next week. The rule breaker mentality is to be open to all the possibilities that the world offers us as investors, not to shy away or shun them. And most of all, I think to pay attention to technology not to ignore it, to be highly intellectually curious about it and willing to blow stuff up so that that stuff that blows up can sometimes, in the best way, blow up your portfolio. So there it was, essay number one, introduction to June 2006 issue for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. All right, well, it's time to proceed forward in time, Rick Engdahl. Yep, we're back in our time machine, but we're not going that far forward because we've only traveled five months, and we're headed right back to the same service, Motley Fool Rule Breakers. This was the introduction 
to the November 2006 issue, which I will now read. Dear fellow fools, there is no I in team, the old saw goes, to which the wag, in this case my brother Tom Gardner, may be heard to reply, yeah, but there is an M and an E. Well, the concepts of I and team are on my mind as I sit down to write this month's introduction to Rule Breakers, and it's easy to see why. Looking over our scorecard, we now have three picks up 200% or more since the launch of our service. And the best thing about that achievement is that three different fools picked them. Our own Tim Byers picked Akamai, now a four-bagger and the biggest gainer in Rule Breaker history thus far. Next up, yours truly picked classic Rule Breaker Archipelago, which got scooped up by the New York Stock Exchange Group as the New York Stock Exchange itself began to break the rules. Hello, Europe. And biotech expert Charlie Travers rang the triple gong, first of all, with his selection of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. You know how good it makes me feel to write the last paragraph? Way back when we started this service, one concept on the drawing board was, in quotes, all David Gardner all the time. But from the get-go, I wanted Rule Breakers to be about a team, not just the M and the E. And now to know that two of the three most successful picks have come from others stepping up big reminds me of what I think makes The Motley Fool great in the first place, and that's our community. You're in the Rule Breakers community, and I am too. And so are Tim and Charlie. And so is Rick Munares with his 100% gain in The Knot, a fourth team member with a double. And a whole host of others besides like wonderful writer and research analyst Carl Thiel, our service editor Rick Silverman, our service manager Tanya Carlson. And just to complete this inside baseball sentence and leave it at that, heck, even last summer's intern, Glenn Brandeis, was great to work with. And today he's in the top 25 in caps. We have a very talented and engaging online team strolling our discussion boards too. Breakers Beth and Brian and Dan and Java and Orion and Tinker and, well, who's next? We're growing. We have so many wonderful readers from whom I'm learning so much, from Database Bob to KB Edwards to Geezer Rob to Ocean Blue LA. Really, the list goes on far longer than that. I named those wonderful contributors off the top of my head. If I truly try to list all the people who educate, amuse, and enrich me on a daily basis at Rule Breakers Central, this paragraph would run on and on. And as you can see, I'm already near the end of my page. So please forgive this month's slightly narcissistic introduction. I think I may be a bit giddy since together we weathered a very bad stock market over the summer. Sure I am, especially as I look at the future of the companies already ringing up profits on our scorecard and the ones we'll come upon next, including the two recommendations on the pages that follow for them and for you too, as a member of Rule Breakers, as a member of our team. Full on. All right, well, a few reflections about that one now as we re-enter the present day. The first one is... My brother Tom was the first one, at least in my life, who came up with a great response to the line, there is no I in team, by saying, well, there is an M and an E. Now, maybe the Greeks realized that, although I don't think they were speaking English. But, I mean, maybe maybe we've known about this for decades. But at least for me in my context, I'm used to hearing 
know, tough guy coaches when we were schoolboys going through school. And the tough guy coach would stand in front of the team and go, there is no I in team. So leave it to the wag. Maybe the guy in the back row to sheepishly raise his hand and say in so many whispered words, but there, there is an M and an E. So my brother Tom is that person in my life, and I love that about him. It was two years into our service that I, I wrote that essay. It's fun to think back. We were making two picks a month, so that's 24 picks or so, and three of them had already gone up 200-plus percent. I'm happy to say we have a lot more stocks than that today in Rule Breakers, and they've gone up a lot more than that, but it was fun to note that they were picked by three different fools, and in fact, all three of those fools and many of the others mentioned in that essay are still at our company 15 years later. You if you're a Rule Breakers fan, you know who Tim Byers is. You know who Rick Munares is. If you're a Motley Fool Asset Management fan and follower, maybe you've heard him on our podcast. Charlie Travers continues to be a wonderful fool. He was very focused on biotech back then. He's much broader today. But it's just a delight for me to read that. Picked at random. And remember how many of those friends remain friends and active fools today. And that really speaks to the power of our community. I do feel compelled to update the numbers, of course, calling out those three stocks back in November 2006. Well, Akamai, which was the first one, and at that time, a four-bagger, the best performer in Rule Breakers history early on, Akamai ended up going down from there. In fact, I repicked it in February 2008. Not a great time to pick any stock, really, but we ended up selling in 2011, the first position, which I referenced in this essay, which I said was up four times in value, that's a 300% gain. It ended up closing out in 2011, six years later, with just a 94% gain. Now, there were some brutal years in there, and doubling your money over that period of time wasn't so bad, but that second pick was down 27%, and ultimately, we just kind of exited Akamai. I'm sorry to note, it has tripled since 2011. So overall, it's been a pretty good performer. Certainly a company like Fastly, which has entered a lot of Rule Breaker portfolios at different price points, lower and higher. Fastly, also a Tim Byers favorite, kind of within the same technology, the speed up the internet technology that had its allure for us back in 2005 when we first picked Akamai. So that was Akamai. The other two stocks referenced, well, one of them was Archipelago, which was quickly eaten up by NYSE Group, as I mentioned in the essay. Later, it rebranded itself to Intercontinental Exchange, and that remains an active rule breaker pick today. First picked on January 19th, 2005. Here we are 17 years later. It's about an 11-bagger. The market's up about 471%. That stock is up 1,091%. So it's continued to be a steady eddy. And this is a company behind some of the biggest stock exchanges in the world. Archipelago was a technology player that got eaten up by the New York Stock Exchange Group just before it began merging with European stock markets. And today, this is a real significant player, of course, kind of a Pepsi and Coke relationship with NASDAQ, where NASDAQ is also of course, running the platforms for some of the most important stock exchanges in the world. So interesting to see what Archipelago be became. And then really the best performer of them all was Charlie Travers's pick of Vertex. I was bragging back then in that essay it was up 200%. Now it's up 2,023%. It is a 21-bagger and still an active pick for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. In fact, Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Intercontinental Exchange are two of the three oldest 
longest held rule breaker picks. So a delight to see in that essay, we just kept holding them. And even though Akamai ended up being a disappointment that we sold too early, really as a small portfolio of three, that was an outstanding performer over the succeeding 15 years. So fun to look back on those stocks. I'll just mention two quick more things about that essay. One is I really loved the sense of esprit de corps that I felt for our members in early days. We were a much smaller service and the discussion boards were a much bigger part of the overall service offering back then. So you you hear in that sense, appreciation of community and the team. There's no I in team. There is an M and an E, but you, you heard that in that essay. You also heard me mention that I liked the two stocks we were picking that particular issue. So how can I not go back and see what they were? The first is a company I've completely forgotten about that flamed out after 14 months. It was a horrifically bad biotech stock pick. It was Panicos Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol P-A-N-C, one of my worst picks ever, down 89% from the point at which that issue was published 14 months later. It went down to 82 cents when we sold in 2007. I was just checking by May 16th of 2011, my birthday again. This is now 10 years ago. It hit zero, finally, zero cents. So ticker symbol P-A-N-C. We did sell out of it at 82 cents before it cratered all together four years after that. But wow, what a dog that was. Happy to say, though, the other stock picked that particular issue was Baidu. And Baidu was a Rick Munara's selection. Our cost basis in Baidu is $8.34. So to see it today around $150 makes me really happy to think about the performance, the 17 bagger that we've gotten from Baidu. And as I am often want to say, if you take those two together, you see one of the worst stock picks we've ever made and one of the better stock picks we've ever made. And even your worst can't even hold a candle in terms of how important it is to your overall net worth if you're letting your winners run and not adding to your losers. So the worst you can ever do, as I've often said on this podcast, is you could lose 100%. You should never do worse than that unless you're leveraged, and I don't think you should be doing that. So the worst you can ever do is lose just 100%. It's not that bad because the best you can do well by do is up 1,688%. So as a little two-stock portfolio, that particular issue knocked it out of the park, even though one of those two stocks was one of the worst stock picks I ever picked. Well, before we hop back in our time machine, let me mention that this week, the last six years, I've done what I call David's Biggest Losers, volumes one through six, where I would spend this particular podcast to kick off the year looking back at my worst stock picks of the previous years. This is the first year that I haven't done that for Rule Breaker Investing, and anybody who's been listening to me for a month or a year knows why, because I'm no longer actively picking stocks. I'm not picking stocks at Rule Breaker Investing or Five Stock Samplers here. So even though it was something I love doing, and of course, I continue to reflect on these things and share with you new learnings and insights and conversations with all manner of wonderful people, you won't be hearing David's Biggest Losers from me again. And yet, I'm happy to share with you my biggest losers all the time in investing and in life. And you just heard about one of them right there. Panicos Pharmaceuticals. I didn't even remember the name of the company when I looked at the ticker symbol in preparation for this podcast, but PANC, which is now a delisted ticker and a truly horrendously bad stock pick. Again, I picked it somewhere over $10 a share and 14 months later, it had dropped to 82 cents. So that's part of Rule Breaker's history and certainly one of David's biggest losers. All right. Well, we're going to go 
nine years forward. You ready? Wow, here we are. It's it's January, not of 2022, although it is. It's January of 2015, January 28th. In fact, this was for the February Rule Breakers issue. Nine years forward, we had started titling these essays. We, we're no longer calling it Introduction to Blank Blank. This one is entitled, Is Your Portfolio Risky Enough? And as I prepare to read this one, it's just a reminder, I tried to write these to make just as much sense in 2015 as they would in 2006. And I hope this makes just as much sense to you in 2022 as it did when I wrote this seven years ago. All right, let's start off the year talking about a subject important to every investor, no matter how adventurous, risk. We've created our own risk rating index at Rule Breakers to give members our read on how risky we perceive each of our stocks to be. It runs 0 to 25. The higher the number, the greater the chance of a substantial loss, which is how we define risk here. Not not volatility, but loss. Rule Breakers is particularly well-suited to this measure for two reasons. First, we own many risky stocks, and that's that's by design. To paraphrase a movie franchise that made a lot of money for Motley Fool Stock Advisor members, with great risk comes great returnability. That's in line with the very words I wrote in our first book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide, and I quote, the greatest, least mentioned risk of all is not taking enough risk, end quote. The best way I know to beat the market averages by substantial sums over time is to buy stocks about which your friends and sometimes your stomach are saying, wow, that's not exactly a sure thing. Often followed by, they could get crushed. You know, like Zillow could get crushed by the real estate industry. Keurig Green Mountain could get crushed by Starbucks. Mercado Libre could get crushed by bad Latin American governance. And Leapfrog could get crushed by free apps on the iPhone. Well, you'll note that of those four, one has gotten crushed. Leapfrog has lost two-thirds of its value since we picked it three years ago, including another setback after a bad earnings report this holiday season, which, which we're reviewing in this issue. I sprinkled that one in next to some of our winners to remind you that you always have to be ready to take the bad with the good. And this leads to the second reason that risk ratings are apt for rule breakers. We've had a lot of new members to the service in the past 12 months. Welcome. For many of you, we may be guiding you into your first foray buying stocks. If you're just dipping in your toe, consider using our risk ratings, not just to measure risk, but also to seek out relative safety. Our lowest risk stocks in Rule Breakers, all risk ratings of six or less, are Google, American Public Education, Intuitive Surgical, NetEase.com, Under Armour, IPG Photonics, IMAX, LinkedIn, Ellie Mae, Price Smart, Five Below, and Viva Systems. Now, how many of these 12 stocks? do you own? Only two are losers for us on an absolute basis. That's a very high hit rate, and the losses they show are as nothing compared to the massive gains. If you're new to investing and you want to start the new year right, 
at Rule Breakers, own as many of these kinds of companies as possible. Just head to our scorecard and sort by risk for a quick guide to our whole slate of stocks. And that was the end of the Rule Breakers intro essay, February 2015. I know we're looking way back, but wow, that's looking way back. Did I hear a DeLorean somewhere in there? All right. Well, my first reflection now back in 2022 is to remind you that the risk rating system we developed at Rule Breakers continues to this day to be something that I cherish and something that we use. It's not universally used at The Motley Fool. I don't think it's become a a fool's tool, but certainly for me as an investor, I continue to love the zero to 25 point system. And in fact, on May 19th of last year, I did a full weekly podcast with my friends Alicia Alfieri and Maria Gallagher. We went through two companies and took them both all the way through the 25-point system in order to compare and contrast. The companies, for the record, were Toro and Chegg, two very different companies headed in different directions, as it turned out. So for anybody who wants a refresher or has never heard about our 25 points of risk, I can talk you through that whole thing in one podcast. I highly recommend that. A second thing that jumps out to me about that essay is with great risk comes great returnability. Of course, I was punning off of the Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility. But I do think with great risk comes great returnability. But I also think there's a misconception sometimes about what we mean by great risk. I think a lot of people think the more risk you take, the better you'll do. That's definitely not always the case. I think you need to take risk in great companies. Those are great risks. And what I was championing in the essay I just shared with you seven years later was looking for the lowest risk rule breakers, the ones that had risk ratings of six or lower. And I listed 12 for you. And I thought it'd be fun to go back and see how they've done. So let me briefly account for all 12 of those stocks in order, real fast, Google was at 500. Alphabet was at 500 that day. It's 3,000 today, up six times. American Public Education has dropped from 35 to 23, a loser. Intuitive Surgical has gone from 50 to 350. That's a seven times gain, the best performer of all 12 of those stocks. But NetEase.com, not far behind it, 22 to 105, a 5Xer. By the way, I should mention that the stock market's done pretty well. It's up 140% since seven years ago. But as you can see, any one of these performers, Intuitive Surgical is a seven-bagger on its own, would carry this entire group of 12. Let's keep going through them real fast. Under Armour, a real disappointment. 37 back then, seven years later, just 21 today. But IPG Photonics from 75 to 175, that's a double. IMAX. Should I blame COVID? Should I blame people not going to the theaters anymore? Or was IMAX already kind of losing it before that? I think it's the latter. But anyway, IMAX was at 33 back then when I had judged it. A pretty safe rule breaker. Today, it's 19. So just about cut in half. LinkedIn and Ellie Mae, both respectively, would be bought out within one to three years of the podcast. Neither is still a public company. But LinkedIn from the day I wrote that essay, would go on to drop from 220 to 190 before it got bought out by Microsoft. Overall, for Rule Breakers, by the way, it was a great stock, but that short period wasn't great. Ellie Mae went from 44 to 99. That's another double. Price Smart, five below, and Viva Systems were the last three. Price Smart over the last seven years from 80 to 88. 
up but well behind the market. Five below a superstar performer from 32 to 205. That's a six-bagger. Viva from 35 to 253. That's just about a seven-bagger. So when you take those 12 stocks, I haven't done all of the math. Anybody who wants to replay the last three minutes of this podcast and write down the numbers themselves, you can calculate it. But we destroyed the market with the lowest risk rule breakers on our scorecard at the time. And again, using specifically the rule breakers risk ratings, which continue to be available in different ways to members today. So of course, I love the system. And as has sometimes been pointed out by members of our community, sometimes it's not just scoring risk. It might also be a pretty good look into what resilient companies will be winners over the course of time. So yes, I originally devised this years ago to measure risk in a world where I thought risk isn't being measured well for stocks, and it should be. But in some ways, it's also a measure of quality. And so consistently, true rule breaker stocks with low rule breaker risk ratings ain't a bad place to start at the start of a new year. If you're starting a new portfolio or looking to add a bunch of, I hope, seven plus year winners to your portfolio as well. The one other final thing I want to say about this essay, I'll just reread the line again. The best way I know to beat the market averages by substantial sums over time is to buy stocks about which your friends and sometimes your stomach are saying, wow, that's not exactly a sure thing, often followed by they could get crushed. And I specifically remember a conversation I had with a family member whom I won't name. It's definitely not my brother, Tom. It's nobody in my direct family. This is more like a cousin who was explaining to me after I'd picked Tesla in 2011 that it was going to get crushed. It wasn't making money and would go bankrupt. I think he was saying that in 2014. Tesla has done pretty well over the 10 years plus since we've held it for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. So while it wasn't listed in that group of 12, I want you to know I stand by everything I've said about Rule Breakers and risk, and is your portfolio risky enough? But I'm always talking about smart risk, risk in really resilient, strong franchises, not in silly penny stocks or crazy stuff sometimes you see promoted on the internet. So risk is one of those big four-letter words, but it means many different things to many different people. I wanted to make sure through this essay and through sharing that with you this week that you understood how I think about risk, backed by a 25-point rating system. All right, well, let's move on to number four. Let's jump back in our time machine. That was most excellent, but we really didn't need to stay in it too long because here we are. It's December 2015. This essay that opened Motley Fool Stock Advisor that month was first published on November 20th of that year. So again, around six years ago, it was entitled Buy High. And before I share this last essay, let me mention that of the four, this is the only one written for Stock Advisor. The first three you've already heard were for Rule Breakers members, generally people who'd opted into a service that's taking the pure Rule Breaker approach. Motley Fool Stock Advisor, where I did use my Rule Breaker approach pretty much from its opening in March of 2002, but I was always conscious as I picked stocks for it that it was for a more general audience, often for a more beginner audience. So me talking about Rule Breakers Well, I always did so in the context of making sure I knew I was speaking to people for whom it might not be as appropriate. So I would try to explain myself to stock advisor members why I do what I do. 
If you're a regular listener to this podcast, the phrase buy high is something you'll understand instantly. But if you put yourself in 2015 in the shoes of somebody who's brand new to the stock market and had just signed up for Motley Fool Stock Advisor, and you read an essay entitled Buy High, might have been a bit of an eye-opener. Let's start. For those new to my investing approach, which I practice everywhere but discuss most often in Motley Fool Rule Breakers, I look for six attributes in my favorite stocks. And the sixth is my special sauce trait. I'm looking for my stocks to be called overvalued by financial commentators and the press. That's right. We specifically want the financial media, prominent spokespeople, to say our stock is overvalued. That's a good thing. That's a buy signal. Three thoughts. First, the other five traits, which you can find to the right, and they're there in a pullout box. But anybody who's a Rule Breaker listener probably already knows my six traits of Rule Breaker stocks. And if you don't, dear new listener, please just go ahead and Google it. You'll find it. First, the other five traits I wrote, which you can find to the right, all speak to an enterprise's overall excellence. For instance, is it a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry? with a sustainable advantage, visionary leadership, etc. If you find these things in your research, well, that's already a pretty remarkable company. So, somebody telling you on TV that its stock is overvalued right now shouldn't carry much authority in light of the company's excellence. Second, when people say a stock is overvalued, they're usually thinking about some very simple ratios. For example, price-to-earnings ratio that are easy to calculate and which the market already knows. Uh, but what is being missed by those very simple ratios? Well, most of the important things in business. For example, the power of the company's brand or how effectively it innovates or the CEO. Some CEOs add incredible value to enterprises, and some subtract value. And these two are not captured in your price-to-earnings ratio. Do you really want to fly blind with that? Third, if everybody has the idea that a stock is overvalued, then it makes even more sense to buy it because everybody's money is presumably sitting on the sidelines because it's, in quotes, overvalued. So a big portion of the market is not willing to pay up to buy that stock. As the years unfold, these great companies will then convert their skeptics into shareholders. And as that money comes into stocks over time, well, that's what drives up share prices. That's why this actually works. These stocks, in quotes, climb a wall of worry, some call it. Remember, first-rate companies are going to have first-rate valuations. That's why I don't look for cheap stuff or, in quotes, buy low. That's why we have Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Starbucks racking up big long-term gains for Stock Advisor members. Each of these stocks was called overvalued when we recommended it and very often, repeatedly so, in the years since, on their way to big gains. And that's how the essay closed out, and that's really how this 
This podcast this week closes out with just a few final thoughts on that essay. The first is, I wrote down to myself in my preparation notes, invisible, greater than sign, visible. Let me speak briefly about that. Things that are visible, everybody can see, including computer algorithms that trade stocks minute to minute on the internet. Ratios are all visible. Financial statements are all visible. Many things today in an information age are visible. Therefore, for you and for me, I think the edge comes not from articulating to the world what is already visible or acting on the visible things, but instead getting our edge in the invisible. And that's always been the right-brained approach that I think is at the heart of Rule Breaker Investing. As I called out in that essay, we're looking for great CEOs. There's no number on the CEO and financial statements. It's invisible. In fact, it's very subjective. Some people think Elon Musk is a genius. Some people think he's crazy in a bad way. I'm much closer to the former, but somewhere in between those two. But there's no question he has incredible value to enterprises. There is no number that you can put on Elon. Though ironically, such a visible person, his value is invisible. As our company brands or company cultures, how effectively companies innovate, as I mentioned, those things are all invisible. Therefore, I think you and I, by looking at those things, focusing on them and discerning them and being invested in them over the only term that counts, the long term, those invisible things are what get us so much of the alpha, which is what we call beating the stock market averages. Every percentage point by which you beat the market averages, you've added one point of alpha. Speaking of alpha, let's talk about the four companies that I closed that essay with, all of which were my picks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor, all of which remain today active picks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. I'll give you here their prices as I wrote about them on that day, again, published November 20th, 2015. But I want you to know, as I give you the prices from where they were that day, that all of them, we had substantially lower cost bases. We'd bought them way below where I was talking about them back in November of 2015. In fact, I think some skeptical readers back then may have thought, have I missed Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Starbucks? They've already done so well for Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Well, on that day, Amazon was at 700. Today, it's at 3,300. On that day, Apple was at 30. Today, it's 180, having recently been crowned this week the first $3 trillion market cap company. On that day, Netflix was at 110. Today, it's 600. On that day, Starbucks was at 60. Today, it's only about a double to 114. But think about the performance of those four companies. You and I don't need to invent a silly acronym to capture the excellence of those companies based on the first letter of their names. I think anybody who knows about Fang stocks and my thoughts about those know that I have my tongue in my cheek as I say that, but think about those first-rate companies, all of which looked so overvalued when we first recommended them. They probably looked overvalued to many people seven years ago, and indeed, they are the great winners of our time. So the title of that essay, Buy High, is a challenge to you and to me and a reminder that most of the great things, most of the first-rate things in life and the stock market too, cost more. You're paying up. You're paying premium pricing for a premium product. But if you really have found a premium company, that company will go on to generate multiples upon multiples of your initial investment if you butt hold it over time. I know a lot of you are smiling right now as you hear me close this week's podcast because you have owned Apple 
for a long time. You have owned Amazon, Netflix, Starbucks. I hope not Panico's Pharmaceuticals. In fact, you couldn't have owned it very long because it got delisted shortly after I picked it. You have owned Intuitive Surgical and Google. Sure, IMAX might have underperformed for you, but you know what? You've got five below and Viva Systems too. You recognize the benefits of buying high. Well, thank you very much for joining me this week. It was a lot of fun. Even though we didn't get to do David's Biggest Losers this year, we still shared some of my bigger losers, but I hope you can still hear the ebullience in my tone because you've heard the numbers, you've heard the facts around the performance of these companies and their performance for you, our members, in our services over long periods of time. And whether I'm right and the stock market goes up this year or not, you know that the key is that you remain invested in great companies, buying high if you must, asking at the right moments, is my portfolio risky in a good way enough, applying a lot of our rule breaker thinking to your money, your professional career, and your life. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.